and welcome to Eureka Nerd. I'm Will Davis, pi r squared. And I'm Leah Richards, not running in corridors. That's right, this week we are lessons for children. I'm serious about that, it's how I broke my toe. There are many things that children need to learn, because that's what a child is, a little learning box, and then once it's full up of information, we let it out into the world to, I don't know, what do kids do these days? Vape? Work unrewarding office jobs. Yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so, starting off on a positive note, because we have lots of lessons for the young'uns out there, if you are a young'un listening to this, send us a message on Twitter, at Eureka Nerdcast, or to Eureka Nerdcast at gmail.com. That's Eureka Nerdcast at gmail.com. About just how much of the youth of today we are not understanding, because it'll be a long, 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 long list. Top of the list, I think, is uh, why are kids eating Tide Pods on YouTube? Why is that a thing that's happening? Then you get your 15 minutes of fame, and then 15 minutes in the ambulance. And then chronic obstructive pulmonary disorder for the rest of your life. Oh yeah, but you can get that from a life of vaping as well, and it takes way longer to kick in. So that's the goal now? Yes, we are all just going for that super asthma. Good to know. Like I said, long list of things we do not understand about children, but when it comes to children and understanding, new research from Northwestern University, as of the 3rd of January, is looking into what children know about ecology. Now they're taking a slightly different approach to this compared to many previous studies who have focused on, and I'll quote from a press release, Middle-class European-American children living in urban or suburban communities typically located close to universities. So, just who the researchers could see from out their window. Hey kid, you want to do some science? Whereas this study is looking at a range of children, including four-year-old children from urban Native American, rural Native American, and urban non-Native communities. So, a more representative slice of who America is. People living in of and out of cities. They want to find out how preschool children are understanding and interacting with ecology and the native world around them, so they did that by setting up a little diorama, a little playset of a forest with realistic trees, uh, a little pond, and they were introduced and just said, hey, kids, have a play. And then the observers record how all these pieces fit together. And a lot of similarities came out in this, but one of the major differences that struck the researchers is that the rural Native American children, a group who are sometimes stereotyped as maybe being less verbal than other groups of kids were particularly verbal in this task, that all the native children were more likely to take on the perspective of an animal either by speaking for it or by mimicking the actions an animal toy might be making if it were real. Yeah, saying, I'm thirsty whilst they make the eagle fly to the pond is one example given, or by flapping their own arms like eagle's wings. And they do note that taking someone else's perspective is a developmental milestone. And one of the last quotes in this piece from a Jennifer Woodring, co-author of the study and project coordinator at Northwestern University, says, Evolving the forms of play in early childhood toward realistic ecological play will be an important innovation in the early childhood science education. Which I hope will last, because looking at my idea of the future, there'll be a bunch of people sat round on the sand saying, and here's where the fish used to be. Your bleak vision of the future. Yeah, because then the guy on the war wagon comes past playing his guitar and he's like the bus driver, I guess. They all have to go up in the back and start playing the drums. Oh, damn, yeah. And then you don't learn the names of plants at all. No, but you do learn how to rock. Which is also a useful skill. 
Rocks are part of ecology. Sort of. Yeah. Yeah, they have an impact on the uh, the biomes that grow on them. Just imagining a couple of parents waving their kids off on the wall wagon now. Okay, honey, have a nice day at school. Die historic on the Fury Road. In contrast to this, I want to point out that one of the major keystone pieces of my early ecological education, in as much as that's a formal thing, which it wasn't, was the complete book of the flower fairies, which is why I can now walk out into a field and point out some wildflowers and give them names. Certainly much more than me, because I didn't have the flower fairy book growing up. I had a big book of Narnia, which was about the size of my entire school bag, actually. And it's just the first four or five books, because I think the last couple get weird. The last couple do get weird. Did they have pictures? Kind of. Was like, around the borders, so a bit illustrated. Okay. Because I can... I can see my box set of the of all seven books from where we're sitting, and it's it's not that big. The print was probably a lot bigger as well. Mm. And uh, obviously, what having read the Narnia books at such a tender and impressionable age has done has made you uh, very much an atheist, kind which of. I don't think is what C.S. Lewis was going for. But I do anthropomorphize lions and mice quite readily. So... What's the take-home lesson for the kids or for teachers from this story? I guess it's ecological empathy and sharing a viewpoint, a developmental milestone, and one that extends into nature as well. And you might find out interesting things if you're not just focusing on the most readily available children to you. Yeah, you've got to strive. Find some unusual children. Wait. Go out looking for children? No. I'm going to drop that. Use a variety of children. Use the whole child. Everything but the squeak. (laughs) Speaking of children, we can keep rolling on to our next story, which is working in a very similar age group, really. But it's not looking at nature so much as looking at nurture. Pretty in pink and boisterous in blue... question mark? Perceptions of gender-appropriate colours and how they can be easily manipulated. You might have noticed if you've been anywhere near a toy shop in the last, let's say, 25 or so years, that there is always one aisle that is entirely pink. Might be sparkly pink, might be iridescent pink. But it is all pink, and if you are, like me, a female-assigned person who was... Growing up in the 90s, you might have aggressively rejected pink, at least for a while. I have personally got over that, but it's foisted upon us, somewhat. Even to the point of, I remember overhearing parent and child at the till in a co-op or somewhere where they had the Kinder Eggs, and they had the blue ones with Marvel heroes in, and the pink ones with the My Little Ponies in, and a kid picks up a Kinder Egg and they say, no, that one's for girls, because it's pink. They're not gender-assigned eggs. The chocolate's chocolate. The chocolate's chocolate, the toy is a toy. Your kid's going to stick it up their nose all the same. (laughs) And the study published in the journal Sex Roles, looking at 129 preschool Chinese children, and assessing how easily their perception of a colour's gender suitability could be influenced. First of all, starting with a deck of coloured cards and toys with no reference to gender and how the kids would express no preference for a specific colour. So they might have a truck and the colour purple and just be like, yeah, truck, purple. But 
if preschoolers in the label group were told that yellow was a girl's colour and the green was a boy's colour, then the corresponding gender differences would start bearing out. You'd start saying truck, truck, green, boy's colour, uh, hairbrush, yellow, and how easily that connection was made. And then, once they've established a green and yellow gender preference, according to the researcher's design, they're given yellow and green puzzles to play with. Colour didn't make any difference to the child's puzzle performance. Unless they'd previously been exposed to the gender labelling. Which is why the researchers do suggest using this finding to encourage marketers to colour code by gender is not okay. And that it can actively damage expectations and performance when it comes to puzzle solving and possibly a lot more. The lesson here is, hey kids, the spectrum of light has no consideration for gender or orientation, just... If you want to play with a monster truck, play with a monster truck. If you want to play with a pony, play with a pony. Because the world will crush you under its heel soon enough just to have fun while you can. I should probably stop being so down on things. I don't want to start reinforcing negative behaviours and being, you know, a bit of a downer. You know what's super a downer? Violence. It's not to be encouraged. Especially not among school children. Luckily, researchers at the University of York have found no evidence to support the theory that Violent video games encourage that behaviour in their players. So get on that, Grand Theft Auto, if it's age-appropriate. Yeah, that's an 18-certified game. They did only test on adult players in this study. But this is also something which I remember being a big to-do back in the early thousands, late 90s, early thousands. There was a Floridian lawyer, especially, who was trying to make a name for himself by tackling the perceived evils of violent video games, and this was back when Grand Theft Auto was a top-down game that would run on, you know, PlayStation 1, where you could just about make out the shape of a gun in your little stick man's hands. Mostly what I remember of Grand Theft Auto is it was, it was probably Vice City, where you could put in a cheat code to get a, a big sex toy as a weapon and use that to beat people up. That was hilarious. In Vice City, that's a cheat code. In Saints Row 3, 4, 5, uh, the one where they're in space, the one where you're in hell, that is like a signature weapon. So yeah, the times are changing, I guess. Nonetheless, even if you have been playing these games, you're not more likely to go out and hit people with big rubber dongs in real life. That's purely innate. That's with you from <laughs> Any birth. Any desire you have to do that. <laughs> With 3,000 participants, the team from the University of York tested the model of priming, where exposing players to concepts within a game makes those concepts easier to use in real life. Previous experiments on this effect have had mixed conclusions, but in this one, they are pretty confident that they can find no link between, at the very least, the level of realism in a game's violence and how that affects players' behaviour after playing the game. And this priming starts off with some pretty straightforward non-violent stuff, where participants play a game where they have to either be a car avoiding collisions with trucks, or a mouse avoiding being caught by a cat. Following the game, they're shown various images like a bus or a dog, and asked to label them as a vehicle or an animal. Pretty you know, straightforward stuff. So then, once they've been primed, you transfer that into... Like you say, the realism of video game violence and fake violence. 
In particular, they focused on ragdoll physics, which, hilarious when it happens in games and you can send someone spiralling off a cliff, then they zone out of the world and erupt out of the sky at 10,000 times the normal walking speed because the physics engine is broken. Ah, Bethesda. (laughs) And they found that by priming people with violent concepts, there was actually no link to realism and violence. So, yeah, again, if it's age-appropriate, kids can play violent games. That's not us saying... Well, that is us saying that, but we've got science behind us, and we accept no criminal responsibility for your kid deciding now is the time to start bludgeoning people with a giant sex toy. Also, if we just... You know, a little brief rundown of some of the games we've played in our lives and some of the ways that has not made us behave, like various... Tekken games. I don't go around kicking people in the face in the street unless they've really upset me. That's a different conversation. Out of all the Marios I've played, I've never jumped on a turtle. Not even the giant ones who I might like try and slowly sidle up against and sit on top of. I played a lot of Crash Bandicoot when I was a kid, and I have not made a habit out of trying to explode stuff without exploding myself. I've played a lot of Mass Effect, and I have not had any romantic success trying to seduce an alien. Keep trying, darling. I believe in you. I've got nothing to follow that up with. So, we should probably just keep on moving to our next story. (laughs) We're not talking about uh, preschoolers anymore. We're not talking about adults. We're talking about that bit in the middle. Teenagers. Ooh, teenagers. Yeah. You know, teenagers are always on their social media and their phones and just... And they just, I mean, they don't know what's out there, do they? Turns out they do. Turns out all that social media they're using has made them quite good at using social media. Imagine. Imagine. And not only are they quite good at using social media, they're pretty good at using it with a critical eye and discerning between useful and not useful information. Which is reassuring. Great job, teens. Yeah, because most of the internet isn't true. If we're just kind of classifying how much of it is fiction and non-fiction, how much is performance, how much of it is documentary. And there is a difference between not true for entertainment purposes and not true for malicious purposes. And that having a critical eye and being able to determine that this isn't real, this isn't honest, this isn't genuine. Or this isn't useful to me. And just discard that and move on. Because, I mean, another thing about the internet is there's a lot of it. That, yeah, they can uh, discard things such as, an example from the press release here, the celebrity lifestyle can be discarded as a certain lifestyle that we are not living. Because they were more likely to be having surgery than working out in the gym. That being an actual quote from a participant in the study. 1,300 responses from teenagers aged 13 to 18 in 10 UK schools. We have noted that some participants found it difficult to distinguish between celebrity-endorsed content and that posted by actual sports persons, which does leave them a little vulnerable to celebrity influence. But there are a lot of people who are famous for doing sports, so that is quite difficult, really. I mean, I don't know all the people doing sports. I barely know any of the people doing sports. So if they post something on social media like, hey, here's a thing that'll make you healthy, I will most likely ignore it. Yeah, just distrust everything and everyone. But it does go some way to assuaging fears that kids are just passive receptive. It's reassuring that the kids are thinking about it. And a quote from Dr. Victoria Goodyear of the University of Birmingham here, that 
Contrary to popular opinion, the data from our study show that not all young people are at risk from harmful health-related impacts. Many young people are critical of potentially damaging information that is available. Oh, also, they do note at the end, adults shouldn't ban or prevent young people's use of social media, because it gives plenty of learning opportunities as well, but they should focus on the experience and helping kids to be critical of what is coming up, how relevant that is to their life, and understanding that there's both positive and possible harmful effects as well. And personally, having been someone going through their teens as the internet was turning into the centre of our lives... I'd recommend not letting them use the internet without some supervision. Yeah, like, keep the computer in the living room. I know what I found on the internet when I was 14, 15. I think the less said about that, the better, really. But speaking of other naughty behaviours that teenagers are getting up to... Drinking. Imagine that. Teenagers doing an age-inappropriate activity, such as consuming alcohol. Shocking, I know. It's one to look out for, because the more you drink in your late teens, the more likely you will suffer liver problems as an adult. The earlier you start consuming this chemical, which directly causes liver damage, the earlier you will suffer liver damage. This revelation comes to us from a survey of more than... 49,000 Swedish men who are aged 18 to 20 between 1969 and 1970. This is the age that they were being conscripted for military service. Most men of that age were being conscripted for military service, only a few percent being let off for medical reasons. So once you've got all this captive audience, I guess, and you ask them, how much have you been drinking? And you can track that data for national patient registers, causes of death registers, and see who is dying of liver failure when, and wouldn't you know those who are drinking heavily at the age of 18 and 19 are more likely to suffer from liver damage earlier in life. And this is adjusted for other potentially health-impacting factors like BMI, whether they smoke, their use of narcotic drugs, cardiovascular capacity, and cognitive ability, although I'm not sure whether being clever or stupid will make your liver work better. It might explain a lot of other premature deaths, though. Because <laughs> oh, let's face Klaus, it, this we is... miss him so much. If only he had not drunk the floor polish. <laughs> <laughs> and the takeaway from this is maybe that the safe level for consumption of alcohol in men should actually be brought down a bit, because even if you're just drinking up to the safe level all of the time, then that kind of consistent exposure isn't going to be doing you any favours either. All of the science we're doing is telling us that drinking is bad for us, but I assume humanity will persist in doing it because we've made a habit over the entire history of being a species and a society of doing something to get out of our heads once in a while, so... It is going to be hard to break a habit after the first 8,000 years. Let alone the millions in between us and our... Uh, Lima relatives with whom you know our shared ancestry is distant they go around rubbing toxic centipedes on themselves to get high so which does sound like the kind of thing that a teenager should be critical of if they see on social media if you get a buzzfeed video saying 10 new tricks for meeting i know the man of your dreams rub a centipede on your body boys love it no 
it's more likely to be on YouTube under the name Toxic Centipede Challenge. Oh, God, you're right. You are 100% right. Hey, kids, don't want to pay for a piercing? Just get a bullet ant to bite your ear off. We could definitely start a new trend with this. We could get so many hits, so many views by doing <laughs> dangerous things with dangerous insects. I do know some zoo rangers. I don't think they're going to lend you bugs for this sort of nonsense. I'm sorry. No, they can just leave the gate unlocked on the way out and I'll, uh, <laughs> I'll sort something, I'm sure. No, this that is a bad idea. We shouldn't recommend it to any youngins who we are We straight listening. up do not recommend it. This is Eureka Nerd, a science podcast endorsing not being bitten by toxic insects. Bad for the insect, it's bad for you. Something else that's bad for you. Unfortunately, it's it might be how you're hearing us now. A new study exploring the link between adolescent life satisfaction and screen time has found that teenagers who spend more time on social media are less happy than their peers. Because in looking at historical trends for satisfaction and happiness, Professor of Psychology Jean M. Twenge and colleagues Gabriel Martin and W. Keith Campbell from the Universities of San Diego, SDSU and Georgia, respectively, found that, well, kids just aren't as happy as they used to be. One thing they can point at as having increased in prevalence and availability is, well, screen time. And particularly smartphones. They have looked at the difference between teens before and after 2012 when the percentage of Americans who owned a smartphone rose above 50%. And that's not to say that completely banning all phones and screens and media is recommended or even helpful because even the happiest of the participants would check in with what was going on with people on Facebook. They reckon about an hour to two hours is recommended for teens in terms of screen time so they can get some in but not enough that then you start to well go off the deep end. Although it's difficult to tell if this is necessarily caused by exposure to social media or if happier kids are just doing more stuff anyway the happier kids spent more time socializing in person and more time playing sports but if you're at a school where you don't get along with anyone and you're not athletic you're not going to have so much else to do in your spare time than look at facebook and you're probably not going to be that happy either there's kind of a mudging of the waters of cause and effect there but, you know, try and get out more. They do say that being outside, doing some kind of face-to-face -face activity with friends and peers, it's, it's linked to being happier. So, I mean, give that a shot. I highly recommend finding your local knitting group and hanging out with them. And tabletop role-playing. Find some nerds, fight some goblins. You'll have a whale of a time. I feel like that's probably a bit more catered to our audience than joining a racquetball team. Yeah, I mean, you could go do sports, but I'm figuring the reason these kids aren't doing sports anyway is because they're bad at it. And I don't want to suggest that anyone who's bad at sports goes and exposes themselves to the negative impact on their self-esteem of being bad at sports in public. Maybe they should just pick one of those weird sports like croquet or curling, where it's a really intense brushing down the ice or slow golf. Yeah, why not? Is Tiddlywinks a sport? I think it is considered a sport. Yeah. Join a competitive tiddlywink league. That is your Eureka Nerd <laughs> lesson 
from this press release. Get off the phone. Tiddle some winks. True fact, though, speaking of sports and tabletop role-playing, my secondary school's most successful school team was the Dungeons & Dragons team. The idea of competitive Dungeons & Dragons is weird to me. Yeah, I don't know how exactly they did it competitively, but they they were playing at, like, national level. Do all the DMs get a brief, like, well, your team has 70 turns to make it through Orgrimmar's castle and... I mean, there's this whole, like, Adventurers League thing. I've not got that deep into it. I'm happy just, like, eating snacks and being a dwarf once a month. Like, whatever. Similarly, in our next story from the Society for Research in Child Development, who sound like the kind of guys who would know about child development... You'd hope. So, you know, it's good to have them turn up for this episode. Civic engagement in adolescence and young adulthood is beneficial for adult development. Being socially minded and active in the community is better for your development and prospects. Well, up to a point. Up to a point. They do note that being involved in activism is a mixed bag. They don't suggest why. Some positive behaviours they encourage are voting and volunteering. If you go out and meet people and participate in local democratic process, then, yeah, you're going to be informed, you're going to be involved, and you're going to go forward in life. If you are what is classed as an activist at a young age, then maybe you are... Maybe it's a bit too much too soon. It's easy to slide into pessimism. I mean... Just seeing what's out there, it's easy to slide into pessimism, so... Yeah, you crash up against a brick wall that early and realise that, huh, nothing we've done today seems to be having any effect, and there's some people who've been at this for 40 years. Hmm. Well, I think it's best put by Lindsay Till Hoyt, Assistant Professor of Psychology at Fordham University and co-author of the study. Uh, Many types of civic engagement may be positive for young people by contributing to their educational and income trajectories. It remains to be seen why volunteering and voting were related over time to positive mental health and health behaviour, while activism was related to more risky behaviours in adulthood. One possibility is that youth who engage in activism may feel frustrated when things are slow to change. And kids, i got to tell you, that feeling does not go away. <laughs> but, you know, let's stay positive here. Let's go for voting, let's go for volunteering, let's go for civic behaviours. Maybe a little bit less screen time, a bit more time raiding dungeons with your tiddlywink crew, because, I mean, if we all just kind of team together and get along, we'll probably pull through this. If we pick on one another, on the other hand... This press release, our last big press release really here, it shouldn't come as a surprise to anyone, and sorry to go out on a downer, but teens who are severely bullied as children are at higher risk of suicidal thoughts and mental health issues. Because, yeah, that's bullying. That's how that works, that's what that does. I'm not sure that the Canadian Medical Association Journal really needed to put this down in writing? But it's, sometimes it's nice to have something to point all the way back to. If someone's like, oh, it's character building. Okay, it's built a character where I have trouble making phone calls. Great job, guys. Oh, Love it's it. it's just boys being boys. Yeah, and now this boy is perpetually afraid of loud noises in the street and has the constant feeling of anxiety and someone following him in busy populated areas. So, you know, um, let's maybe not. Let's not minimise the impacts of bullying and let's reinforce that, hey, if you are bullying, cut that out. If you are being bullied, there are resources, there are people and places who can help because the world needs 
encouraged positive people now more than ever. It's important to note how this particular study has been conducted. It looked at data from the Quebec Longitudinal Study of Child Development. 1,363 children born in 1997 and 1998 from birth till 15 years of age. Researchers assessed children based on self-reporting about peer victimisation at six intervals throughout their childhood and adolescence. Participants were from a range of backgrounds and family structures categorised into those who reported none or low victimisation, a moderate victimisation group, and those who reported experiencing severe peer victimisation. And those children were more than twice as likely to report depression or low mood aged 15 compared to the low or no victimization group and three times more likely to report anxiety so be nice to each other the eureka nerd lessons for this podcast four-year-olds know about nature don't care so much about gendered colors are not going to be violent if they play violent video games are probably going to know their way around social media better than the people conducting the research shouldn't drink alcohol, certainly not up until they are an adult, and even then in responsible low doses, should have supervised and controlled amount of screen time on social media and for phones, should be encouraged to be active and engaged and vote and volunteer in their community, and if they are bullied, then intervene. And I feel like we've pretty much completed child psychology there. Yeah, I mean, that's that's pretty comprehensive, right? If we have children in the future i think i think we're gonna win at parenting with that information if there are any child psychologists listening to this who want to give us honorary degrees for like rounding up four years of work into a good solid half hour then they can find us at eureka nerdcast at gmail.com on the other hand if child psychologists think we're being facetious and would like to discuss that with us you can contact us the same way or at eureka nerdcast on twitter you can also find us on facebook just eureka nerd if you, as a child, have jumped on a turtle or done some six shots of vodka out of a sippy cup, then tell us about that in an iTunes review. But also, I guess, seek medical attention? Because, yikes. <laughs> and before I forget, if you want to hear more about me talking about interesting things with other people sometimes, then head to wikiwalking.co.uk and listen to me do exactly that but with wikipedia instead of just science and on that note we have just a few quick stories for you to take away and maybe get in contact with us as well if for example you have been a youth drinking energy drinks and you have developed heart palpitations then now is the time to stop because that's happening indeed in a nationwide survey of canadian youth 5% of people surveyed reported having sought medical attention for adverse effects from drinking energy drinks. But also, more exposure to charismatic career women to inspire female students to pursue the same field. And if you are a charismatic career woman who wants to inspire female students in the same field, then let us know. You can also follow a bunch of hashtags on Twitter, hashtag women in STEM, girls in STEM for inspirational female figures in science, technology, engineering, mathematics. If you have been inspired by a charismatic career woman to pursue the same field, then hey, let us know how that worked out. And maybe let her know as well. It would certainly give me warm fuzzies if I knew I'd been someone's inspiration for pursuing their career. I tell you what, if we find Mary Beard in the wild, we can give her a high five. 
I'm not a historian. I'm not trying to be a historian, but I will give Mary Beard a high five. And on that note, that's all from us for this episode. So that's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me.